You're listening to audio from Queen City Church. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message will encourage you and offer practical steps for a relationship with God that keeps getting better and better. Today we are starting a brand new series that we're calling the greatest sermon of all time. Now every year around this time of the year, uh, we take a series and we focus on the life of Jesus leading up to Easter. And this year um, we are looking at the largest recorded teaching of Jesus in the Bible. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this, this one sermon actually covers three chapters in the Bible, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, and it's got 107 verses in this sermon. And it has some of the most famous teachings of Jesus in this sermon. Uh, things like, like love your enemies and the golden rule, the Lord's prayer, the fact that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, turn the other cheek, go the second mile, and so much more. You don't even have to be a church person to know about some of the things he said in this sermon. And in my humble yet accurate opinion, I believe that this is the greatest sermon of all time. And so over the next seven weeks, I am so excited that as a church, we are going to dig into this sermon for the next seven weeks. We're gonna camp out in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, and study the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to know that we have an incredible resource for you uh, during this series, and it's this 14-day devotional, which is extremely good. Uh, it's very well made. It's very artistic. In fact, big shout out to our friends at New Spring Church in South Carolina who, who helped resource us with this amazing resource for you, which is free online. So you can go online and you can access this whenever for free, queencitypeople.com slash info, and you can find the link there for this. But also we have some printed copies that are available uh, that you can actually purchase. And so they're $10. We don't make any money on those. In fact, we, lo- we lose about $1.67. Um, and so, but if you want to get that today, you can as well. In fact, um, I bought a handful of them because I just want to be generous. And so I just want to see, is there anybody here that has a birthday today? Anybody? What about this week? Yes, okay, you young lady, this is for you. Noah, get that to her right here. You don't have to stand up, you don't have to do anything, you don't have to do anything, all the way back, right there. All the way, just if you got a, right there, raise your hand real high, wave at me, wave at me, about five rows back, right there, yes. Right there, Noah, stand up, go all the way around. (laughs) Go give that girl that awesome devotional. Thank you, thank you. Right. If you have a birthday this week and you did not get one, come find me. I will give you one. I got some more, okay? Um, but before we study the very first section of this Sermon on the Mount, um, I, I want to set the scene. I want to make sure that you understand the context behind this amazing sermon that Jesus delivers. Because right before this, Jesus officially starts his earthly ministry. He's baptized, he goes off for 40 days and has 40 days of prayer and fasting. He's tempted by the devil and and then he actually defeats the devil three different times. And then he starts his earthly ministry and he does all types of Jesus-y things. You'll see Jesus like start to heal people and he heals the sick. He calls his first disciples. He casts out demons. He miraculously helps paralyzed people walk 
But what you'll also notice is that he begins to share a very specific message. And we find this message in Matthew chapter four, verse 17, where Jesus says that from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And here was the message that Jesus began to preach. Repent. Now, for many of you, that is a very negative word. That's a churchy word that you don't like because you associate that word with things like anger, accusation, and judgment, almost like somebody is always saying it with a very long finger pointed at you saying, repent, you dirty dog sinner. Or maybe you think of like the bullhorn guy who is like at somewhere that I guarantee you they were not invited to be. And they're standing there with the bullhorn shouting at people to repent. Maybe that's what you picture when you think of that. For so many people, that is a very negative word. But let me just tell you, put your guard down because it is a beautiful word. It's actually, it's actually a word that simply means this, to change your mind. That's what the word repent means when you see it in the Bible. It simply means to change your mind about something to the point where it changes your direction. So it's an inside out change. It's not an outside in change. It's God, will you help change me on the inside, which then affects what I do on the outside. Bruce Wilkerson, he actually said this about repentance. He said, repentance mean you change your mind so deeply that it changes you. I think that's beautiful. And so Jesus says, here's his message. Repent, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, this message is the foundation, it's the backdrop of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the major theme of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This message that he, that he sets as the foundation that repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Here's what Jesus is declaring in the greatest sermon of all time. He says this, make no mistake about it, I am a king. I am not just a man. I am not just a good man. I'm not just a good teacher or a good rabbi. I am a king. And I'm here to establish my kingdom. And just like any kingdom, my kingdom has certain rights and responsibilities and regulations. And so I'm going to share those in this sermon. It is not just me sharing a good message and encouraging word. I am coming to share what my kingdom looks like. But I got to warn you that my kingdom looks nothing like what you know. Like my kingdom looks nothing like the world's kingdom. Like the world's rights and responsibilities and regulations are nothing like my kingdom's rights, responsibilities, and regulations. So this is going to be different. Jesus says, what I'm about to talk about is going to be so countercultural, so challenging. In fact, I am remixing life as you know it. Come on, how many like a good remix? And Jesus says, I am going to remix life as you know it. It's like he's coming to declare, I am here to turn the world upside down. Or maybe I'm here to turn the world right side up. And he says in this message, I'm about to share a lot of things of what my kingdom looks like. We're gonna talk about relationships and morals and ethics and money and how you should treat 
your enemies, how you should relate to God, what prayer should look like, what you should value, and so much more. But listen, as I share these things, as I roll out what my kingdom looks like, there may be some things that don't look like your life. There may be some things that go against what you think. There's gonna be some things that when you compare it to the world, it'll look totally different. And in those moments, here's what I'm gonna need you to do. Repent. I'm gonna need you to change your mind on some subjects. I'm gonna need you to line up your thoughts and your life on what I say, not what the world says. He says that that's what it's gonna look like. In fact, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that in this message where I'm gonna roll out my kingdom, the key to accessing this new kingdom is repentance. Let me say that again. Jesus is saying that the key to accessing this new kingdom is repentance. Let me put it this way. If you wanna know what this message is about, the Sermon on the Mount is a king establishing his kingdom through his people. That's what Matthew chapter five, six, and seven is all about. John Stott, he puts it this way in his book about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, followers of Jesus are to be different. Different from both the nominal church and the secular world. Different from both the religious and irreligious. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete description anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude towards money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relationships, all of which are totally at odds with those of the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived out under divine rule. See, the Sermon on the Mount is a king establishing his kingdom through his people. And today, we're gonna kick off this sermon series by looking at the very first thing that he said in this sermon. It's his intro, and he comes out hot right from the gate. He comes out and he says, we're gonna talk about, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. We're gonna be talking about this very first section in the Sermon on the Mount that is known as the Beatitudes. It's the Beatitudes. And these are eight statements that all begin with the same exact word and that word is blessed. In fact, on the count of three, why don't you say blessed? One, two, three. Come on, say it like you wanna be it. One, two, three. Yeah, and he has these eight statements where he's saying, okay, if you wanna know what that means, I'm about to tell you. And in Latin, that word blessed is this word beati, which is where we actually get the name beatitudes. But in the original Greek, it's the word makarios. I know you love it when I bust out the Greek. But that word that you see in your Bible that says blessed is the word makarios, which can be translated blessed, but another way to translate it is happy. Now, whenever Jesus would have started to use this word makarios, the crowd would have been shocked to hear him using this word because this word was not meant for humans at the time that this was written. 
It wasn't used for humans. It was used for the type of happiness, the type of joy that was only experienced by the gods. So in other words, it's a supernatural joy, a supernatural happiness that can't be taken from you. Jesus is saying that's what you can experience. My favorite definition that I found this week as I was studying this passage was that this is a good way to describe this word that Jesus used that we translate as blessed, and it's divine joy and perfect happiness. Jesus says you right now can experience that, that type of supernatural joy and happiness. But it's found, guys, in the most unlikely of places. And that's where we pick it up in Matthew chapter 5. Where it starts, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. And so Jesus sits down on this mountainside and his disciples came to him. And then a bunch of other people started to come and he began to teach them. And the very first thing that he says is that he starts with what we know now as the Beatitudes. And he says, First and foremost, and I think this one is first for a reason. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, do you notice that it doesn't say poor? He doesn't say blessed are the poor. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. See, Jesus right here, he's not talking about the status of your bank account. He's talking about our hearts. He's saying, guys, here's what you have to see yourself as, as spiritually bankrupt. The fact that because of the sin that's in your life, it's created such a debt that there's no way that you can pay that debt off yourself. It doesn't matter what you do, no matter what, you are poor in spirit. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, it says, but God is so rich in mercy that he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And if that doesn't fire you up, maybe 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 will, because it says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor. He took our place so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. Come on, is anybody thankful for what Jesus has done in our life? That he does that. But he says, hey, you want to know where happiness is found? In you realizing that you are poor in spirit. For theirs is actually the kingdom. Everything starts there. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he says, blessed are the meek. And by the way, meekness is not the same thing as weakness. This word right here, it actually means power under control. And he says, blessed are those who have power but are in control. Not those that are in power and use their power to abuse other people or to lord it over other people or to have an out of control power. He says, no, blessed are the meek. Here's why. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the things of God. 
In other words, Jesus is saying every single one of us, and he uses this term because it's something we can all relate to. Every single one of us get hungry and thirsty for something. And he's saying you can get hungry and thirsty over the things of the world that is like Funyuns. It doesn't last. (laughs) And about a few hours later, you'll you'll regret it. (laughs) And he says, no, but I want, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after the things of God, for they will be what we all want is to be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown merciful, which my goodness, tell me that doesn't go against the culture of today. That says, hey, when you make a mistake or when somebody makes a mistake, Man, you make sure that they know they made a mistake. In fact, you cancel them. You make sure everybody else knows that they make a mistake. And there's a huge difference, by the way, between grace and mercy. And it's so important that theologically we understand the difference. Because grace is getting what you don't deserve. But mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And so Jesus says, hey, blessed are those that don't give people what they deserve because they will be shown mercy. Then he goes on to say, blessed are the pure in heart for they will actually see God. And then he closes it out with these two, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And these are the eight beatitudes that Jesus mentions here. And in these 12 verses, Jesus, here's what he does. He completely redefines happiness. And Clovis G. Chappelle, he writes this. He says that the Beatitudes are descriptions of the character of our Lord. Jesus can speak with an authority on happiness because it is his constant possession. Now, I I do not have time to teach through these eight Beatitudes. In fact, Uh, I have seen multiple times where churches have done whole series just over these eight statements. So I don't have time to do that today, but I do want to give you some homework. So I want to challenge you to every single day this week, read the eight Beatitudes. Just make it part of your daily rhythm. Get that inside of your heart. Read them every single day. In fact, why don't you get that devotional or go online and there is the second chapter is all about the Beatitudes and read that. There's some amazing content for you to go a little bit deeper. But for the rest of our time today, I want to go to about a 30,000 foot view of these eight statements and pull out two truths that I see from the Beatitudes. And here's the first one. Write this down. The Beatitudes reveal where true happiness is not found. That when you look at those 12 verses, you will see that the Beatitudes reveal where true happiness is not found. In fact, in those eight statements, you will quickly see that what Jesus says about happiness is very different than what the world says about happiness. Because the world will say things like this, happiness comes from circumstances, So when your circumstances of life are right, then and only then you will be happy. So when you get the new job 
or get the promotion or get the raise, when you're perfectly healthy, when there's no sickness, when there's no pain, when you're sleeping good, when your marriage and your family is drama-free, when your kids actually start school, when your kids move out of the house, when you find that special man or woman that you want to spend the rest of your life with, that when you find the right friends and when you obtain the fame and popularity and status that you desperately want, then and only then, you will be happy when it's based on your circumstances. That's what the world says. But Jesus says very clearly that happiness doesn't come from your circumstances. Not the kind that he talks about in the Beatitudes. Look again at those eight statements. They're not based on your circumstances. In fact, some of them, they actually are despite your circumstances. For example, the second one is blessed are those who mourn. Like that is, like when you're actually mourning, you can tap into a level of happiness that cannot be taken from you. Another example, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Yes, sign me up for that one. I'm all in. Anybody's like, yeah, I want to experience that. No, that's like despite your circumstance. Another one said, blessed are those who are merciful. You know who have to be merciful? Those who have been hurt and need to actually extend mercy. Another one says, blessed are the peacemakers. The only people that need to be peacemakers is where peace does not exist. And he says like, hey, like happiness, it doesn't come from your circumstances. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says that true, lasting, supernatural cannot be taken from you. Happiness does not come from your external circumstances. Rather, it comes from your internal attitude. It comes from the inside, not the outside. And this is the type of happiness, this is the type of joy that Paul talks all about in the book of Philippians. It's actually the theme of the book of Philippians is that you can experience a happiness and joy that cannot be taken from you. One example, Philippians chapter four, verse four. It says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. And I think sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, Oh yeah, that's cool. But think about this. Think about, that is in the Bible. That is what you can experience. You can experience joy always. The only way that that is even possible is if it's not based on your circumstances. Because there's gonna be circumstances that demand like, this is not a natural time for joy and happiness. But it says that you can experience that always. See, that's what the world says. The world also says that happiness, oh, let me tell you where this comes from. It comes from money and possessions. That when you get a certain amount of money in your bank account, when your nest egg gets a certain amount of size, when you finally build up three months of savings, that when you obtain financial security, that when you live in the right house, in the right neighborhood, when you drive the right car, when you get the latest and greatest technology, that when you build a beefy 401k so that you can have a comfortable retirement, then that's when you'll be happy. But Jesus comes and he actually says happiness, it doesn't come from money and possessions. He actually talks about this later in the Sermon on the Mount. But this is a theme that you see throughout the Bible. In fact, the third king of Israel was a guy named Solomon. 
And he was known really for two things. He was known for being one of the wisest men to ever walk planet earth. That he literally had an encounter with God where God said, I will give you one thing, whatever you want. He says, out of all the things I want, I want wisdom. And so he's one of the wisest people. But what you may not know is that he's also one of the richest people to ever lived. In fact, his palace, if it were to be built today, would cost to build that palace between three to four billion, with a B, billion dollars. Now, we had our, 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 our amazing research team, um, David Suey, right here, this guy. I had him research, by comparison, what is the most expensive house he loves, he loves, Zillow is like his, uh, like social media, it is, and uh, just searches Zillow all the time. I said, David, I need your help. Will you help find like the most expensive house that you can find in the United States on Zillow? And this was the house right here, the most expensive house that we could find. It is a 11 bed, 15 bath, 21,000 square feet private island in Palm Beach, Florida no state tax, uh, that is listed, (laughs) that's a bonus, Uh, that is listed for $218 million. Right now, you can get it on Zillow, $218 million. Now, that's no doubt a very expensive house, but that would, guys, that would be a bathroom in Solomon's house. And here's what Solomon one of the richest, wisest people in human history. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter two, starting in verse four. He says, I also tried to find meaning, happiness, fulfillment, by building huge homes for myself, and I made a bunch of stuff. I built a bunch of stuff. I bought a bunch of stuff. I collected great sums of silver and gold. I had a lot of money. I had everything a man could desire. But as I looked at everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. In other words, he's saying, guys, here's what I've learned. Happiness, it doesn't come from all this stuff. Church, that's because happiness is a spiritual need and you cannot meet a spiritual need with a natural source. And Jesus says, hey, in my kingdom, true happiness, it doesn't come from circumstances or money or possessions. That's because number one, the Beatitudes, it reveal where true happiness is not found. But also number two, The thing that I see, 30,000 foot view, things that we gotta understand about these principles is that the Beatitudes reveal where true happiness is found. Because in these eight statements, here's what our King Jesus says. He says, in the brand new kingdom that I'm establishing right here, right now, true happiness is found in one place and one place only, and that is with the king. 
True happiness is only found in the king, in my kingdom. In other words, that true lasting happiness is only found in Jesus. Let me just tell you that true and lasting happiness is found in a relationship with Jesus, which all of you can have that you can have a relationship that is described as close, as intimate, as daily, as consistent, just like you would have with anybody else that you're close with. And he says, you wanna know where true happiness is found? It's found in a relationship with me. It's found in following me, living life my way, living in my kingdom, doing my rules and regulations and everything that I have for your life. And he says, you can look to all these other things for happiness but the truth is they will fall short each and every time. And the truth is church, that applies today just as much as it did over 2000 years ago when Jesus sat down on that hill and he, eloqu- and he beautifully articulated those eight statements. That applies to us today just as much. And here's what this means. Whenever you see these statements, here's what this means for you and I today that if you try to find happiness in anything outside of Jesus, the Beatitudes, these first 12 verses of the greatest sermon of all time, here's what it's an invitation to do. You ready? It's the theme of the whole thing, is to repent. In fact, Here's this question that we have to ask ourselves today. Have I tried to find happiness outside of Jesus? And listen, if the answer is yes, here's the invitation at the very start of the greatest sermon of all time. Jesus is saying, hey, if your answer to that question is yes, no guilt, no shame, no condemnation, but lean into conviction because I have a brand new way I don't want you to try to find happiness outside of me. And so here's what I need you to do. I need you to repent. I need you to change your mind about where you find happiness. I want you to change your mind. Let it be an internal change, which then changes your behavior and your direction. And it changes on the outside, but it's an inside out change. See the Beatitudes at the end of the day, It's an invitation to repent from where we find our happiness. And so maybe you're here and you're like, man, I've been trying to find happiness in all these other things. I've been trying to find my happiness in relationships. I've been trying to put my spouse or my kids or a dating relationship in the place where only Jesus can give me that. Maybe it's I've tried to find my happiness in my career, climbing the ladder, building the business, obtaining the money, getting all the stuff. Maybe I've been trying to do that and it just keeps falling short. Maybe it's, I've been trying to pursue happiness by really trying to just get fame, popularity, status, And Jesus says, hey, if that's you, here's the invitation today to repent. Because the Beatitudes, they actually reveal where true happiness is found in his kingdom. And here's where it's found in the kingdom. 
If there is anything in your life that we can pray for, please visit queencitypeople.com slash prayer. For the latest updates on our church, follow us on social media at Queen City People or visit queencitypeople.com.